from New York City, the city of ambition, aspiration, and desire, this is Populax with Fomai Sardari. Populax is the place where we bring attention to objects of personal luxury, objects of desire, objects that have shaped our experience. Through Populax, I hope to bring to you all the fun and profound ways my guests, accomplished creatives from across ages, cultures, and professions, relate to one object of desire at a time. I met Sarah Lafleur through a mutual friend shortly after she launched her brand, M.M. Lafleur. I think it was 2014, but certainly no later than the beginning of 2015. Since then, M.M. is a major part of my life, one of the very few brands that speaks intelligently to its customers and that produces garments that are meant to work with the body and not against it which, unfortunately, is often the case with a lot of fashion brands. Sarah has always been very generous with her time. She has come to a conference with me for a panel discussion I moderated. She has visited my MBA classes multiple times. She has gone out to have coffee with me, simply to chat. She's down-to-earth, curious, and kind. I highly recommend the How I Built This podcast with Guy Raz for the episode in which Sarah explains how she built her company and her resilience. I also recommend Sarah's posts on the M-MM's newsletter, where she explains how she struggled with infertility, a struggle many women share in silence. She's an inspiration to me and to many women, and I'm truly honored she accepted to stop by Populax to chat about her object of desire. Sarah Lafleur, welcome to Populax. How are you? Doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, and I'm actually curious. What is one object that you consider as this representation of desire for you? So to my, you know, I had a hard time answering this question. I could have, I could have gone in so many directions, but I really tried to think of something that left a mark on me. And I, I ended up selecting the series of paintings from Toin Ogio de Tola's uh, To Wander Determined, which was an exhibit uh, that she had at the Whitney. I want to say now it must have been 27, 2018, 2018. That sounds right. I think it was, it was, uh, I saw the exhibit in the beginning of 2018 and it has left such a strong impression. So I, I decided to select that exhibit. Wonderful. It's a series of paintings, of course, but uh, was there anything in particular that visually you could describe to our audience? Sure. So I'll, I'll just start by saying this is, was not part of the main exhibit at the Whitney. It was 
there's a small room that's actually next to the restaurant that you can, you can actually enter. I I'm fairly certain without paying and it's a rotating exhibition. and, And this was hers. And actually, do you mind if I just read the excerpt of the introduction to the exhibit? Because I think that that will help your listeners really understand what this exhibit was about. Yes, that would be great, actually. Okay. All right. So this is this is a, a sign that's at the, the entrance of the exhibit. To Wander Determined presents the private collections of two aristocratic families, the Umueze Amara, one of the oldest noble clans of Nigeria, and the Obafemi, a minor aristocratic house whose prominence stems from their work as traders and ambassadors for various governances. The works presented here are entrusted to the current Marquess of Umueze Amara and his husband, Lord Temitope Omodele, from the house of Obafemi. And then it goes on to say these paintings are captured from various locations uh, across Nigeria. And the selections on view are the result of a curated connoisseurship spanning nearly 200 years. These collections are rarely shown outside the country. To Wander Determined highlights works from Lord Omodele's family and their travels, as well as works loaned from the Umeze Amara collection. In partnership with the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, their lordships hope to expand on, upon their respective family legacies and engage visitors in an intimate experience of life between these two prestigious Nigerian houses. Toin Oji Odutola, uh, and that, that is the name of the artist, but she signs Deputy Private Secre- Secretary Udoka House Lagos. And so that is the sign that you read coming into this exhibit. And then I want to say, and I, I don't want to, I, 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 my, my memory is not accurate. So please take everything I say with, the, with a grain of salt. That was an excerpt that I, that I actually was able to find on the Whitney site. A series of paintings from essentially these both sides of the family. And you... And, and almost all of the paintings are either a portrait of a single person or multiple people. And you are trying to walk the room. And as a, as a viewer, you, you can't help but try to piece together the story of how, how this happened. And I think when you read the excerpt, I don't know if people caught on to that, but it, it says the, the works presented here are entrusted to the current Marquess and his husband. And immediately, you go, ding, ding, ding. Okay, this is this is a gay couple, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not from Nigeria. I don't I don't know a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of things of, about Nigeria, but I do know that that um, being gay is is illegal in Nigeria. And so already there, there there's an incredible twist to the story. So these are two two families um, united in, in a gay marriage, and each side has come together to show their family portraits. And um, the other thing that you really get out of this is that uh, I think it says um, they they've um, they've built these portraits, and there there's a curated connoisseurship spanning nearly 200 years, and and so you read that and you understand okay these fam- these two families you know they say Marquess like they're, they're royalty they come from incredible wealth and and you see these paintings and these paintings i mean to put it bluntly you can you can just immediately by looking at them you know that it's a story of, a, of two wealthy families mm-hmm. and you're trying to understand the backstory behind one husband and then also trying to understand the backstory behind the other husband and how ultimately these two families came together and i was just completely enraptured by the premise i i 
I think as a, you know, someone who, who runs a brand, I love the storytelling aspect of the brand. And I just thought it was so cheeky of this artist Mm -hmm. to say that she was the deputy secretary and, and, and presenting, you know, as though she was, she was the person who curated this exhibit of, of how these two families came together. Uh, and, and it makes you think about so many things. Um, the artist uh, Oditola says this herself, but what what would have wealth in in Nigeria, and I guess you could say broadly in, in Africa, have looked like had there not been colonization and forced slavery? And uh, I think there's so much about narratives being lost as a result of forced migration. And this idea that, you know, these two families, you can trace their history, their legacy back 200 years, and it's all on display for you to understand. And I just had the most incredible experience interacting with this exhibit. And I I have to give full credit to, it was actually one of my MM, uh, so I I lead a company called MM LaFleur. One of my team members, Mary Adeogun, said, this is this I hear is an incredible exhibit. We need to go. So we so we we went several members of my team. And I thought we were just going to be there for five minutes. I think I think I spent at least 90 minutes just walking around in the small room looking at you know 10 to 12 paintings and trying to piece the story together. I know that you have spent time in Africa. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I spent some time in, in Zambia and then in South Africa. So is that a relationship that you try to, I know that you cannot travel that much any longer, you have all sorts of things on your plate, but what are your ties to Africa today? Are you trying to um, keep that as as something that you may return to? That's that's an um, interesting question. Um, I do stay in touch with some of the people that I, I met you know, and if to tell the whole story, I guess I, I worked in briefly in a refugee camp, um, was volunteering there in Zambia, and I still actually keep in touch with some of the refugees uh, who I got to meet. It was a it was based in Zambia, so we had refugees from Angola, um, the DRC, uh, Rwanda, and uh, actually some of them are no longer at the refugee camp. Some of them have migrated to other parts of Africa, um, like South Africa. And actually, when I was living in South Africa, I got in touch with one of them. Again, he actually decided at that point that he was going to leave the refugee camp. He traveled down from Mozambique and, and ended up in South Africa. So I actually was the first person who who met met with him. Uh, but I think this is a theme, you know, that I, I think about a lot is is just the the narratives of of stories and this idea of knowing who you are and where you come from and, and where your family was living. And, you know, it, not, not to get too dark, but, but it is, I mean, it is, it is, it is dark and it's very much what is happening. I think uh, across uh, the world right now, you know, the, there is a record number of refugees right now in the world. And I have continued um from from a very far distance, and I really only my main contribution is 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 monetary. But I've continued to stay involved in the cause through the International Rescue Committee, which is an incredible uh, refugee relief and aid organization. They also help refugees who've moved to the United States resettle into the United States, and and so I think when I I saw this exhibit, you know, this idea that 
I think I've only ever seen or, or heard these stories in the context of Europe. I mean, I, I'm I'm totally obsessed with Kate Middleton and you know the Queen and British royalty. And I mean, I read the Daily Mail primarily because I, I love all all of that, um, uh, all of those stories. It just almost seems like you know this this fairy tale. And I think to see, I think African people portrayed in that context, it's not something that you, you hear about or read about every, every day. And so anyway, I think this one in particular kind of left a real impression on me that way. And uh, I, I think the title also, I, I interpreted the title, I have to be honest with you, in many, many ways, because when I read, when I saw the work, I was captivated visually. I think it's super interesting. But the title made me think of you. <laughs> because oh, the title, what a compliment. <laughs> I think, I mean, not only, um, and of course, here in the U.S., Practically everyone is from a different cultural background, but but you um, come from two very different cultures, and now you have adopted a third one, and you went to Africa, which is a whole fourth one. So you're a person who really has made the world your home, and, and I'm sure that there have been periods of time where it hasn't been super comfortable to be either in Japan or in the U.S. or wherever you are. But someone who is really determined in making the world more beautiful through action, that's the way I see you. And that is what has stayed with me every time we have a conversation. So do you think that these objects that we choose and, and, and grab our attention are perhaps reminders or of, of what we have inside of us? That's an excellent question. And I, I actually don't even know if I had put two and two together until you said that to me right now. I think you're absolutely right. I think one thing that I that makes me different is, is that I'm I consider myself a person of many places. Um, my father was in the Foreign Service. Um, he's American, but as a result, we traveled around every three to four years. We've moved to a different country. My mother was born in Japan, raised in Japan. And so I have a really close connection with, with her family and my, my parents and my sister actually still live in Tokyo. And I think I just have something innate in me that, that gives, you know, I'm, I have a lot of wanderlust. And so I joke that this is the longest I've ever lived on a a single Island and that, that Island being New York city, you know, I've been here on and off now for 15 years. Um, I spent, uh, but I, I think I, I do consider myself to be from many places. And I, I think I, I wonder about, you know, what that narrative is going to look like now. I actually had, I have, I have three kids and I'm, I'm trying so hard to teach them Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really only try to speak to them in Japanese, but Japanese is an incredibly difficult language. You know, it's not like English where you can kind of pick it up as an adult and and become relatively fluent in it. And I think people are fairly accepting of people who don't speak English fluently. You know, it's understood as it's a method of communication, whereas Japanese is really only spoken by Japanese people. So you either speak it fluently or you don't, um, is, is kind of, I think, the perspective that a lot of Japanese people would have. You know, you either speak it fluently and therefore you know, you're Japanese or you, you have an interesting accent or you don't quite speak it 
fluently and therefore you're non-Japanese. And so, uh, you know, I, I am trying my best to teach my kids Japanese, but I already kind of know that they're not going to speak it fluently or read and write it fluently. I should say it's a, it's a very hard language. You have to really go to school for it. And I do wonder, you know, okay, what part at what I wonder, you know, okay, maybe my kids will, will understand it. Maybe, maybe they'll embrace it, but by the next generation, will it be lost? And I think that that's something, I mean, that that's life, but it it definitely gives me some sadness. And I think, you know, what is, I I guess you could say what royalty buys or what wealth buys is this idea of heritage and and this idea idea that you, you kind of always know where you came from. And that's a, that's a certain luxury, I think. That, that is not afforded everyone. And I, I should be very clear, I'm, I'm, I come from a, a really f- um, fortunate background, but I think, you know, just the nature of migration is that some things get left behind. Absolutely. And you mentioned the word luxury. And of course, you know, this is uh, really what organizes this whole conversation. So do you have a definition of luxury that you can share with us? So it's so funny when, because I, I, I knew you were going to ask that question. And the first thought that I, that came to me when you said luxury was, was home for me. And, and, and I, I, you know, I work in the clothing business. So I, even I thought I would, you know, talk about silk or cashmere or just the finest fibers or that's probably what people would think that I would think of, but actually my, I think the ultimate luxury for me is, is a home that you can always come back to and a home that is cozy and, and um, decorated and full of your, your family stuff, whether that's photos or knickknacks or memories. You know, I think my, my husband and I, we bought a place in Brooklyn and, and I have just, I've spent kind of even in in my to much to my surprise I guess a surprising amount of time kind of thinking about you know how we were going to live here and this being the idea of a family home and you know again to put in context we moved around every 3 to 4 years and often we were in government housing I mean I you know we we lived in in great um, state department housing, but the idea was, it was never, it was never permanent. We would move every, every so often. So we never painted the walls and, uh, often the homes, um, were made for entertaining. So it didn't quite make sense for the family. Like I remember when we lived in my, my father was deputy chief of mission, uh, to, to Japan. So that was basically second to the ambassador. So we had this really grand house that we lived in. And the first floor was incredibly opulent and had huge entertaining space. And, um, you know, there was a huge kitchen with a private chef and, and you would think we were living in the lap of luxury, but upstairs, right. That's where, that's where the, the family quarters are. And I kid you not, the kitchen was probably three feet by seven feet wide. And that's where the kitchen was and the dining table was. And we like squished ourselves into this tiny room and had our meals. And, and did homework um, probably. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was just, you know, not what you would expect at all. So I think this idea of just having a stable place where I can, you know, that I can call my home oh. uh, for me, my husband, um, our kids. And, and I'm really thinking about how we make sure that my parents um, can come stay with us and my mother-in-law. And to me, that is, that is like the ultimate luxury and, and something I, I think about a lot right now. 
And so here we are then, full circle. I think this is a very important definition of luxury. Uh, and you're right. I think most people think about objects and, and something to show off or, or, or things that define status as opposed to how you feel inside. So I think it's a lovely note, Sarah, and I want to leave it at that because this is a very beautiful way to um, finish this imagery, this journey through the work that you brought to us today and learn a little bit more about what makes you wander through the world. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tamai. From New York City, the city of ambition, aspiration, and desire, this is Populax with Thomae Serdari. Populax is the place where we bring attention to objects of personal luxury, objects of desire, objects that have shaped our experience. Populax is a series of stories of desire recounted around one object at a time.